Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. Coming up later, I want to talk about cards with annual fees. So many of us walk around with credit cards that we just keep renewing with annual fees. When do those make sense? When do they not? I'm going to fill you in. Now, here we are on the edge of Christmas and very heavy travel spread over the next two weeks, really two and a half weeks. And we've moved in the time of year that weather can be the X factor and continues to be in many parts of the country all the way past the first day of spring. So airplanes are flying with much higher occupancies than they used to. So if you have a flight that something goes wrong with, either something mechanical with the plane, weather delay, or for revenue reasons, which airlines deny they do, but they do all the time, they take your plane from a route that doesn't look that profitable, they need a plane on another route, they take it and give it to those other people. So what are you to do? Because there's just so many seats. One thing to never do when a flight is being canceled is to go stand in a long line at the gate where your flight is. Because while you're 50 people back, and usually because airlines have cut back on available staff, there may only be one or two people processing you. That's what they call it, processing you. (laughs) To rebook you on something else or tell you to get lost. By the time you get up there, all the most viable best options may be gone. So what I recommend that you do first is a lot of airlines have automated systems where you can do a reaccommodation. The last canceled flight I had I was able to go on the app for the airline. It knew my flight had been canceled and it and popped up with a number of choices that I could use. And I was in an unusual situation. I was flying somewhere that there was more than one airport in a metro area and I found the best accommodation going into a different airport. And I ended up getting to where I was supposed to be going only an hour and a half late. And so I was fine. Being quick on your feet is important, but I do something else. I use FlightAware, and I track my flight through a day, particularly if I'm going in the evening. I want to know what's going on with that flight earlier in the day. And FlightAware, you pull it up for the flight you're taking, and you pull up from the city you're leaving to the city you're going, and it's free to use basic FlightAware. And I will click, there's a button you can click, where's my plate, Where's my plane now? And depending on how far in front of when I'm going to be flying, I'm doing it, I can go through the day and see if a plane is being delayed heavily or whatever, and it will reflect much earlier in the day than when I'm flying. Generally, when a plane is going to take a delay later, and you know it hours in advance, you can contact the airline and at no fee and no additional cost be moved to another flight and you may have to rearrange your day. This happened to me 
last January, I was flying out west to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and my flight took a six-hour delay, and I needed to be on camera that late afternoon, and I was going to miss the whole afternoon and evening's shoot for television. So by tracking my flight and seeing that it was going to take this big delay, I was able to, in that case, I couldn't find an alternate that I could automatically book, but I found one that would work. I called in, talked to someone. They said, there's nothing we can get you on today. Otherwise, I said, well, what about this? I found this combination of flights. And if I go to Oakland and fly from Oakland to Las Vegas, it looks like there are seats available. And that's what I ended up doing. But I found my own alternative plans. And again, during the winter, it's much more important that you do this for yourself. No matter what happens, though, never lose your cool. Never throw attitude. Because the person who's helping you or who so far is failing to help you has a lot of discretion in what they can do for you even if you don't have status on an airline, they have a certain amount of discretion how they can serve you. Suggest alternatives, be politely persistent, and you'll be amazed how many results you'll get when you're the friendly face across the counter versus the person who's snarling at someone. Munchie is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, how are you doing? Hey, Clark. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Now, first of all, you know, thanks, thanks to you for, you know, all your good advice that you've given the radio for free. Thank and, you. Um, I'm happy to do it. I, you know, I, I have such a privilege to get to do what I do every day. So I, I have a question about uh, 529. I have a son who is like uh, just now four, four years old. I'm hearing a lot of things about 529 that if you do a 529 under your child's name, there is a possibility that you, uh, he may not be qualified for uh, government funds or scholarship down the road. That is yeah. a great question. Money in a child's 529, even if it's owned by the child, now will be calculated on the basis of if it was a parental asset. As I've always said in the past, that you want to own the 529 account for the benefit of your child. That's still the best way to do it. I still prefer okay. that that's what you do. So uh, if I have a 529 account on my name and I have some money left over from my college fund, can I use it for my child? You have your own 529 account? Yeah. If, if I, is, it, is it possible that I can open one under my name? So you can have as many 529 accounts as you want. And you can have a 529 account that you own and name yourself as the beneficiary. You can also have one that you own and you name your child as the beneficiary. You can even change the one that you have with you as the name beneficiary and change the beneficiary designation to your child. Okay. So they're incredibly flexible on who gets the benefit of the tax-free use of the money for college. So you let me understand, you right now have a 529 account, but it's not your child as the beneficiary? 
No, I do not have any 529 account. Oh, okay. Okay. But uh, how old is your child? Uh, He's a little over 40 years old. So putting money in for your four-year-old is great because you you get 14, 15 years minimum of tax-free growth of the money and you spend it tax-free. And depending on your state, you may even have the additional advantage of having a state tax benefit for putting money in. So those are the best situations. You put the money in, your state gives you a tax benefit, and then the federal government lets the money grow tax-free. And then if used for eligible expenses, you spend it tax-free. That's a big-time deal. So is there any cap for 529? Pretty much you can put in so much money that it's more than really anybody would ever put in. If I remember right, the typical cap is around quarter million dollars. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it is a lot. So it's very, very flexible with these 529 accounts where you can put in from very little amounts of money per month, typically $25, to as much as many thousands of dollars all at once. And then you have the growth of it tax-free. But one thing I want to make sure that you know, and that's that 529 plans are not created equal. There are good 529 plans, mediocre ones, and terrible ones. And so what I've done is I've been through every plan offered in America, and I've come up with a list of the plans that I think are good for you to put your money in for your benefit of your four-year-old. And I've got that for you at Clark.com. In addition, my belief is that you're going to be best served for your four-year-old if you put the money in the age-based option where the administrator of the plan steadily makes the plan more conservative as your child gets closer to college, but when your child's very young, like yours is, that the money is uh, invested with a higher level of risk short-term, but greater advantage for the 15-year cycle till your child might start using the money. Chris is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Chris. Hi, Clark. How are you? Wonderful, thank you. How can I be of service to you, Chris? We've heard, we've heard you advise many times that we should seek counsel from a fee-only financial advisor. And um, right now, one of our financial advisors is an insurance person. And so um, I, I want to know how we can find a fee-only advisor in our community. It's and, pretty. Um, it's pretty easy. And the insurance agents face a tough time right now because there's been a change in culture about going to people who you know the advice is not going to be influenced by commissions. And the insurance industry traditionally, historically, and today operates based on the agents earning their living by commission, that they give you the advice for free and make their money back on the commissions on the products that they get you to buy. And Mm -hmm. the problem with that is that there's too much inherent conflict in that way of doing business. And, you know, one product 
might have a teensy commission on it and low costs that would be better for you, but it's hard for an individual trying to earn a living to recommend that one to you instead of one that may have much higher commission and then in turn higher costs to you. So when you go with a fee-only financial planner, they're not getting commissions. So a true fee-only planner is only getting paid by you for the advice and guidance they give you. And the advice is with a a real financial planner, it's way beyond Mm -hmm. just you should own this investment or that one or the other, and you should own this much of this and that little of the other. It's much more about, okay, do you have your will up to date? Do you have directives for health care? Uh, what are you doing about making sure that your survivors are taken care of with insurance? It's looking at your whole picture, your goals, and creating a yardstick to see how you're doing achieving them. And I'm going to give you three groups you can look at that all do this differently and see what works best for you, okay? Okay. One is Garrett Planning Network, where you pay somebody to do checkups with you, kind of like going to an annual physical at the doctor. Uh-huh. And GarrettPlanningNetwork.com is the website, and Garrett is two R's and two T's. And the other that I'd like to tell you about is NAPFA, N-A-P-F-A dot org, and that's the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, and they are all supposed to be fee only, no games, no gimmicks. And the third is XY, X is in X-ray, Y is in yellow, XYPlanningNetwork.com, which is geared generally towards people in their 20s and 30s. Okay. But it could be usable by someone older also. So look at the three of those. See which fits what you're trying to do with the goals in your life. And then interview people. Just because you're at the right type of advisor doesn't mean you're with the right advisor. And so you interview them. Interview first by phone and then in person to make that right call. Julie's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Julie, you want to talk about target retirement funds. Is that right? That's right. Hi, Clark. Thank you for taking my call. It's my pleasure to have you here. I was starting to do some research. Um, This year, my husband and I thought we could open uh, our first Roth IRA. Um, And so far, we have invested for retirement through uh, employer 401ks with low-cost investment firms that they had. And as I was researching for Roth IRA investments through some low-cost firms, um, I came across target date index fund offerings, um, which we usually have had mutual fund target date uh, investments. And I was curious what you thought about target date index funds. That is an absolutely fine thing to do. What they do is they make a a mix of ultra-low-cost index funds and put them in a basket of choices that they would feel is appropriate for your age. So the advantage of it is that the expense ratio is so much lower. And you're looking at Charles Schwab, right? Correct. That's where I found these. So at Schwab, if you go in their target index fund choice, you pay almost nothing. 
Correct. That's so, what I saw with the date that we were looking at. So what you're trying to accomplish, I would much rather see you go into the target index fund than the target fund. Okay, that was my question. I was curious because I know that when I looked at the prospectus, there, of course, wasn't much history on the index fund uh, for target date. So I, I right, because it's a it. newer kind of concept. But okay. over time, having your money diversified and being in the lowest cost possible is the best way for you to get as much of your money growing for you instead of fattening the pockets of whatever financial house you're investing with. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can save more and spend less and don't let anyone ever rip you off. I want to talk about you ripping yourself off. I have a lot of conversations that come up casually, often when we're out to dinner with somebody, and somebody will pull out a particular credit card, and I can't resist to say, um, how'd you decide you want that card? And often it will be a decision that was made years and years ago and just by simple inertia in life, that's still the card someone's using. And often I'll find people are pulling out a card with an annual fee. And although that card may have been a great choice, when it was taken out, today it could be a terrible choice. Credit card business moves over time a lot. And one of the worst cards typically to have today are airline-issued credit cards, where there's a tie-in, what are known as dual-branded, where it's a Visa, MasterCard, or American Express, and it'll be tied in with a particular airline. Because... Uh, particularly the three full fare airlines in the United States, American, United, and Delta, have gone to variable mileage award charts. And so a lot of flights now take three, four, or five times the number of points or miles to redeem for a free ticket than they used to. And it's mileage inflation. So what seemed like a good award has come way down. Airline points used to be valued at close to two cents per dollar charged. Today, it's not at all unusual for an airline card to be worth less than a penny. And so unless you fly that particular airline all the time, and by all the time, I mean somewhere around once every 10 to 15 days, it's usually not worth it having that airline's tie-in card. What's a better alternative? Because remember, you're paying an annual fee. Get a card that has no annual fee and just pays you simple cash back. I love and still consider it to be one of the best cards available today, the City Double Cash that has no um, gotchas to it, just pays you basically 2% in cash for everything you do. Fidelity Investments, if you have an account there, they have a variety of credit cards that pay 2% cash back on everything you do. Cash is king. You don't have to worry about seat allocations or hotel availability to redeem points or anything like that. And by the way, the hotel tie-in cards that have 
pretty um, significant to giant annual fees. The airlines now, as airline, I'm sorry, the hotel chains now that they've consolidated, particularly you think about Marriott and Starwood merging, or Starwood being taken over by Marriott, the value of the hotel stay points has greatly shrunk. And so paying a big annual fee for a hotel card is generally not a wise choice either. Think about the cash alternative. And remember, with cash, nobody tells you when you can use it, and no one suddenly decides that your cash is worth less. But hotels and airlines, they do that stuff all the time. Sean is with us on the Clark Howard Show. How can I be of service to you today? Well, um, I've got a couple of questions for you. The first is um, we have successfully attacked most of our debt, and we're trying to set up an emergency fund. That um, is great we news. Have, we've been putting some money aside, but I'm also starting to think ahead for I've got a couple of kids, and we're going to be starting college soon. I still got four years, but um, I know that when you fill out a FAFSA, you, in a sense, get penalized for having a savings account because they expect you to use a good percentage of that to pay for college. Is there any place that I can put my money to not get as penalized? Absolutely. If you were to do what's known as a 529 plan, you eliminate the level of hit that you have for you having resources, and a very small percent is calculated out of that 529 as being your resources, but it's a tax-free way for you to build up money for college for your kids, and then you spend the money tax-free as well. And in many states, there's actually a tax benefit where you get a tax deduction when you contribute money into a 529. What state do you live in? I'm in California. We know California today has the distinction of having one of the very best 529 plans in America. And have you ever heard of it? It's called the ScholarShare College Savings Plan. I have not. It, it's very, very good. Very easy to set up an account. The way it works is you own the account. And you said you have two kids? Correct. So you would set up an account for each child. You open the account, and then you can add to it as you wish. Now, the reason California's plan is so good, and it's even one that I recommend as one of the plans to look at if your own state plan isn't a good one, is that California charges extremely low expenses. So it works very, very well for you. The way these plans operate is whatever money you put in, if it's used for college, referred to as eligible college expenses, Sean, everything you earn from when you start putting money in for your kids till the money is spent is used for college tax-free. And you know in California with very high income tax rates and then federal income tax, tax-free is wonderful. It effectively means you have a lot more money for them. But how does that affect my emergency fund? Okay, so it's a whole different thing than having an emergency fund. You said three things to me, and I got lost in the weeds on them. 
if I recall, you said <laughs> you have successfully attacked debt. You pretty much wiped it out. Now it's time to have some, some breathing space in your life and have a rainy day account. And by the way, you have kids that aren't getting any younger and you got to pay for their college. You don't want to save money in a rainy day account and have it affect their ability to qualify for financial aid for college. Right. So you got a lot of things working together at the same time. So when money is in your name, when you look at how colleges calculate how it affects your kid's eligibility for financial aid, they expect you to spend roughly five, six percent of what five to six percent of what you have in cash for your kid's college. The other ninety five percent approximately is yours to keep. So you can have money in a rainy day account and most of it will not be looked at with greedy eyes by a college. So you can do your rainy day and put it in a simple online savings account. And the money is available to you typically on two days notice. Okay, that's where I currently have it. Okay, so you're doing the rainy day thing right. But the other half of what you alluded to, the kids' college, the 529 is where it's at. So is it my understanding that when applying for the FAFSA and they look at student assets, they expect a much, much, much higher percentage of contribution. Right. They clobber you for any money in a kid's name. When a kid is going to college, they expect that money, that the only purpose of it really is to pay directly for that college experience. So that's why with a 529 account, you never have the kids own it. You own it with your each of your children in the two accounts as beneficiary. And then it's treated as a parental asset, not a kid's asset. Okay. So that leads me to my second major question. What's that? My 12-year-old wants to open an investment account, and I need a place for him to do it. So now my fallback is Charles Schwab that will allow him to open an investment account with a $100 minimum deposit. And then everything available in the investment world, owning individual stocks, owning funds, owning exchange-traded funds, all available to him to manage in that account as long as he's got a million dollars, a hundred dollars to open it, he's good to go. And Charles Schwab is a fantastic company. He'll be able to do pretty much everything online with them, buying, selling, tracking his investments, learning about them, studying them, reading if he does funds, reading how the fund works, and they offer a wide variety of funds that you can invest in commission-free. Barry's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Barry. Yes, can you hear me, Clark? I hear you perfectly, Barry. First of all, Tim asked me to tell you that I'm wearing my Clark Howard University t-shirt. Good for you. How is that factory second quality t-shirt? Oh, it's a super quality t-shirt. And in addition, uh, I've probably been listening to you long enough to be in the postgraduate school of uh, CAQ. <laughs> Home of the Chippewas. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I've got something to discuss with you, really not a question, something that I've thought of probably a lot over the last year just wondering about it, and that it concerns uh, college education and, and the uh, salaries that they 
claim that people will earn after graduating college. To me, it seems that the uh, that colleges are being pushed on a lot of people, where it really isn't as necessary as people would think. Uh, my first thought was, statistically, I think they say that college graduates earn about $51,000 on average uh, after they graduate, as opposed to a high school graduate getting about 33000 Well, I wonder how that's skewed upward by the people who graduate with medical degrees, technical degrees, or engineering, et cetera, any type of scientific degree. Yeah, no uh, doubt that the STEM people skew the average salary coming out of college and that people who get a liberal arts degree tend often when they graduate from college to be uh, severely underemployed particularly for the level of education they have that's totally true Uh, yeah and I, i also wonder in addition whether we are not pushing enough uh technical schools and community colleges and associate degrees which are really very specific to occupations, thereby giving a uh, probably a much better opportunity for employment. Well, you are so right, and I, and it can be a combination of things. I talked with a woman who is what in some states is called an LPN and in others called an LVN, where she mm-hmm. went to a technical school and got a LVN nursing degree and is earning a living now and has been working for four years, and she's now gone back to college. She's working part-time and going to college to now get an RN. So she's done it in stages where the first thing she had to do was she had to be able to generate an income. And she's doing that and getting experience in her field at the same time. I mean, there's lots of ways to handle the education thing. And, you know, roughly two-thirds of people when they graduate from high school now, Barry, enter college. And a lot of those people might be better served going to pick up a trade rather than go straight to college. I agree wholeheartedly. And and I think one of the problems is that we brainwashed the entire population to believe that a college degree is a necessity for getting a good good occupation. It isn't. Well, that Uh, is true. Although over a working lifetime... Even someone who starts off with a liberal arts degree that they have trouble finding work with that, that over a working lifetime, they will make roughly 60% more than someone who only has a high school degree, high school diploma. Mm -hmm. But that obscures what you're bringing up, which is the value of going to a technical college or a community college and getting a specific skill that is desired and needed in the marketplace, and that individual may make a very good pay rate. You're right. I'd I'd rather have my uh, child have a degree in uh, plumbing than in uh, 17th century uh, Polish architecture or something like that. Now, why would you pick on 17th century (laughs) Polish architecture? Well, that's what my degree is in. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I love I love this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. 
Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And Teresa's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Teresa. Hi. Teresa, you need to buy a car. Well, um, I might need to. My car is, is it's kind of old. It still runs, but um, I'm thinking if I do some traveling and drive a lot over the next couple of years, I, I want to really rely on my car. So you use your car, your older car now, to just get around as you need to. But if you take a road trip, that's when it makes you nervous? Yeah, and I'll be working and traveling a lot more in the next um, couple of years. So I'm thinking that I would take money out of my Roth IRA to pay for a new car? You know, I'm going to tell you something. I would not recommend that for one principal reason. Car loans are dirt cheap. As long as you have good credit, is your credit good? My credit is excellent. If your credit's excellent, are you a member of a credit union? No. All right, I want you to join a credit union. And one of the things that drive people to join credit unions is because they are buying a newer used car because credit unions write by far the cheapest car loans. Okay. And the reason um, I'd want you to do that instead of withdrawing money from your Roth is that your Roth is working for you. The money that's in there is growing tax-free. It can continue to grow tax-free till you need money in retirement. So... I mean, you just don't want to withdraw money from a retirement account when you can borrow the effectively the cash you need to buy a car so inexpensively. You know, paying 3% interest is almost free money. Okay. Um, yeah, the, this car I'm driving now, I pretty much bought it outright. So it makes me a little nervous to have that monthly payment on a loan. Yeah, but see, let's you know. say you take out the loan and you start hiccuping financially or worse, you would still at that point have the option as a fallback of withdrawing your, some of your contributions you've made to a Roth and use that as a way to pay off the loan. So I'd rather you up front borrow the money you need for the car. You're very, I can tell you're very careful with your money, very conservative. You wouldn't be getting a new car if you didn't really feel like you needed it. I'm not worried about you having that car loan. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.